Welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and you are listening to the 25th episode of Making Ways. That's right, since we launched in the spring, we've been joined by illustrators, designers, filmmakers, photographers, founders, nonprofits, all to share their journeys in order to inspire, educate, and elevate your creative game. I started making ways to help listeners everywhere both learn about creative roles that maybe they had never been exposed to before, and also learn from the people who have gotten there, from their paths, and maybe even serve as a bit of a blueprint for you all, for listeners. We've had so much fun with the shows, and the guests that we've had have all really personally inspired me, and I've heard from so many of you, whether it's in person or online, that you're learning a lot too and getting a lot from the conversations, and that means the world to me. So today, to celebrate our 25th episode, I thought we would do maybe some highlights, kind of a look back at some of the conversations from these past episodes. And this is by no means the like definitive best of real because there are guests that I've had on the show that have been unbelievable uh, that aren't on this uh, episode. But, you know, really wanted to just uh, dive in, pull out some conversations that I thought would be fun to highlight and uh, put it all together for you guys. And as the show has gone on and more guests have joined, there have definitely been themes that have emerged. So over this episode, you're going to hear guests talking about creativity, about their process, about overcoming challenges, and really great advice uh, about networking, about growing your career, about conquering your fears. First off, let's hear from Craig Winslow. Craig is an awesome guy. He was an Adobe creative resident. He's a projection mapping artist, and his work is amazing. It really bridges the physical real world with digital, and it projects light and imagery onto the real world to make incredible pieces of art and interactive design that I've really never quite seen before. So let's listen in for a moment with my conversation with Craig as he talks through how time pressure and deadline stress kind of forced him into this new creative territory that turned out to be really fruitful. We didn't finish until 3 or 4 a.m. each night, like every single night pretty much. So it definitely wasn't like a one thing a day. It was like, okay, in the early morning and then we'd sleep for a few hours and then get up and get ready to get on the road to our next location. So I think there's something interesting about that philosophy because you basically, you were very, very ambitious about the project um, and you wanted to go just whole hog, completely mm-hmm. dive into it. Yeah. Do you actually like that approach of just going full blast and then learning what you can't do or what should what you should do differently yeah. versus kind of, doing things a little bit more piece by piece. I think there's something yeah. really interesting in that approach. Yeah, and I think what was really great was by the end of it, we had 15 different videos or different installations and you were able to see like, oh, we really love day nine or like day five, we really dropped the ball or we could have done something differently. Or, it, But it's a really good, I think, pressure to say like, okay, here's these were all done in like one day or here you can only do so much in that amount of time which I think the limitation forces you to think more creatively in different ways. Um, and actually now that I think of it, I think what inspired like day six with this light capsules thing, like we 
we were in Omaha, Nebraska, and the limitation of like not knowing exactly what to do, we turned and saw one of these big black and white wall ads, this old ghost sign, <clears throat> um, except it had been repainted. So it was really crisp and it was black and white. Um, and I saw it and immediately I was like, oh, I could vectorize that really quickly and I could animate it. And like that could be part of this installation somehow. I love that, that the creative pressure um, exerted so much force that you had to think um think really differently <laughs> and think like really quickly. And in that crunch, in that stress, yeah. you saw this thing, like you said, that was right in front of you and now has inspired a year's worth of work. Yeah, yeah, totally. Next up, I spoke to Scott Kirschenbaum, a documentary filmmaker sharing advice for emerging filmmakers that any creative person can take to heart when they're approaching their next project. Scott is the director of the Alzheimer's documentary, You're Looking at Me Like I Live Here and I Don't which aired nationally on PBS, and the upcoming film Of Woman Born, an intimate look at one woman's labor and birth. Let's listen into what Scott had to say. First and foremost, make the film that no one else wants to make. Be as brash as you can be and come up with a subject that no one would in their right mind think about making. A a film that just is so out there that it's singularly yours. You are the one who has to make it. And I'd say secondly, you're not going to make a lot of money doing documentary films. So if you're in it for money, you might want to consider a different film avenue or take on a paid work, work for a production company. But if you want to be completely independent, you've got to accept the fact that a lot of the time you're going to be relatively broke. And that's exciting to me i mean it is it's it's a daring adventure as helen keller might say when it comes to creative endeavors the obstacles can sometimes seem impossible to overcome tyler heard an acclaimed virtual reality animator who makes these incredibly joyous interactive music experiences talk to me about the mindset change that really got him moving and the genesis of his first project called butts let's listen to what tyler had to say Because there were so many roadblocks in my life up till then where I was like, I want to make things, but I don't have the resources. And it finally was just this like, just start mentality that got things moving the most. I actually did get advice from a therapist uh, when I was still in San Francisco. This was before I quit my job at Double Fine and went to New York. I, I had these ideas for projects that I really wanted to do that were not video games um, and Uh, The advice was, you know, like, oh, you've got a lot of reasons why you're not doing this. Like, why don't you just start? And I was like, oh, but I don't have. And they're like, stop saying, but like, just just get moving, just start and see what happens. Like, you know, there's ways to get around all of these things that you're worried about. And um, and that was that was kind of the best advice. And then one of those just start experiences was creating butts. And then that opened all these, all these doors for you. Yeah. And I mean, that was just kind of all happy accident. You know, it's like I, I made this thing that when I was making it was not, I didn't intend to even show it to anyone. (laughs) You know, I was making this thing because I was making it for myself and it was something that every time I started on, would make me happy and I would be like doing things and then I'd be like, Hey, what if I push this a little further? And then I'd make myself laugh. And then I was like, okay, whenever I'm giggling at my own work, I know I'm going in the right direction. And then 
people responded so well to it that I started figuring out, okay, well, if, if I'm making myself laugh or if I'm happy with this, if I'm giggling, then chances are there's going to be a large portion of people that feel the same. Um, and that was really, I mean, I was very like timid about creating my own things. I was very scared to do it. I was really scared of people. I mean, my worst fear was like someone thinking my work sucked. And like, that was like, I was opening this giant sensitive wound and then someone would just be like poking at it with a lemon, sharp lemon stick. Is that a thing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you can uh, find that. Somewhere. Yeah. That's a lemon. You could fashion it at home. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, I, it was really like, I, I had this very neurotic experience, like releasing butts onto Vimeo. Uh, but then it just, you know, it kind of like, it went from like zero to a hundred thousand views in you know, a couple of weeks or something. And so it was like, Oh, this is a thing that people are passing around at animation schools and like people are responding to this and I can make this nonsense that makes me laugh and other people want to see it too. Next up we have Greg Shegel, a cartoonist actually first met on one of my very first jobs at Nickelodeon in consumer products. Uh, Greg is a great guy. He's an illustrator. He's a cartoonist. He's done SpongeBob comics and he's got his own comic called Picks now. And I asked Greg about his creative process and his biggest challenges and what he loves about his job that gets him coming back to the page every day and invigorated by his work. After having a career and being in the middle of a career as a professional drawer, yeah. what is something that maybe people would be surprised to hear is you know, really hard part of that job and maybe a part of it that you love and kind of keeps you know, bringing you back no matter what the day challenges uh, you face? So the, the thing I love, well, there's two things that I love. It's easier to think of the love things. I love when, when the ideas happen when either an idea formulates or the, the puzzle pieces click together and two ideas that maybe weren't connected connect or something, whenever that, that, that alchemy of creation happens, there's, there's no, I mean, there are a few charges, but making people laugh is sort of a, that kind of a charge where like, Ooh, I just did something. It's like a little magic trick. So there's that. And then just when you get a good reaction from, you know, when a kid reads it and loves it, when a kid sort of comes up and wants the second book, because, you know, I published the first book in 2014. So there were some people that read it early or read it then. Like, where's the second book? I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm sorry. It's taken a while. But like that excitement is very, I mean, that's that encouragement again. It's that somebody cares enough to want more out of you. Uh, the hard part is the opposites of those things. You know, when the ideas aren't there and you're struggling to get to it, or you have to draw that page that you've written for yourself. You're like, oh God, why did I, why did I set this in the school cafeteria? And I got to draw all these kids and their lunches and make sure they're all different and like do all this stuff because I've put it in my head to make a different, you know, a cast that's not one note. And then, you know, when you don't get those reactions, you see a bad review, it sucks. Uh, but really the, the hardest part is still just that promotional engine. You know, I'm, I'm of, a, and I try and be as, as modern as, and hip as I can, but I am, I am wired, whether it's as a middle child or whatever it is to, to not seek personal attention, like attention for myself. I love hearing from Greg. And if you want more of Greg and his uh, conversations and uh, great wit, you should check out his podcasts. One of them is called Stuff Said, where he interviews people in the comic book world. And the other is called Cruising Together. And yes, that's a podcast about Tom Cruise movies. 
Next up, we have Shanna Tellerman. Shanna is a brilliant entrepreneur, product designer, and business person. After her first company sold to Autodesk, she actually went into the investing world at Google Ventures. So she learned about starting companies and raising capital and entrepreneurship from the other side of the table, which is a really interesting perspective. And today she's back on the founder side of the equation. She started a company called Modzi, which is really redefining and reimagining how you can decorate your home, decorating and furnishing through artificial intelligence and augmented reality. It's incredible, you should check out Modzi. But let's hear part of my conversation with Shanna about, I thought this was really interesting, it's about her kind of lack of game plan for her life and her career and what she would think of herself looking back in college to where she is today and how she actually let her passion and the places where she was finding flow the most kind of dictate her next moves in her career. So let's listen in. there's a few things I usually bring. One is that it's so easy to get really down and really down on yourself and your business and where you're headed in your life. And you get so kind of, you know, tunnel focused. (laughs) Um, so one thing is, is just like broadening the perspective that like, it's going to work out and you, you might hit rock bottom, but you're going to come back out of rock bottom and rock bottom probably in the scheme of the world is not even that bad. Um, Cause I feel like I went through that myself, like my first company several times and I thought it was everything. And then you get past the company and you move on with your life and you realize actually it taught me so much. It was such a great experience, even if I really did hit the rock bottom several times. So that positivity I think is, is something people oftentimes come to me just to like feel a little bit better. <laughs> and if you could put yourself back in your shoes and in your, yourself is today in line with where you thought you might go at that time? What do you think your college self would be, uh, would be seeing? Uh, I I would be shocked. (laughs) (laughs) I think the, the good news for me still is that I just have never had a clear vision in college too. I, I went to art school, but not because I wanted to go into the art field. So I had this sort of blank canvas of my life that was like, I don't know where it's going. I don't know what I'm going to do. That's kind of scary sometimes, but, uh, but I also can't like paint a picture of this is who I should be. And this is what I should become. And I feel the exact same way right now. Like there's no, there's no end game for me professionally at the moment. I mean, I want to see Modsy be a massive success, but it's not for me to get to something. Um, that's just like, it's not how I live my life. So in college, you never would have been able to predict because you you didn't really have a game plan per se. You wanted to just follow your passions and follow where where things went. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably another piece of advice that I don't know even who gave it to me or maybe I read it, but that concept of like finding that place where you're in in flow, right? And when you when the hours disappear. And they, you know, just time is flying and you don't know what happened, but you're just so engrossed and so engaged and so inspired. Like when you have those moments, you're doing the right thing. And so figuring out how you do that in somehow in your living is like, that's like, that's the goal. Right. And there are many paths to getting there. And that's like, that's been my career passion and my career goal is just to keep finding those moments of flow. 
Next, we'll hear from Tara Donne. Tara is a dear friend of mine from back in the day at Syracuse University, and she shares some of the roadblocks she overcame as a very accomplished professional photographer to move into working with motion and video, which she kind of felt blocked from. And we'll hear about her process and how she approaches giving yourself new challenges and pushing through. Getting into motion has been really fun, though I have to admit that in the beginning, which was maybe like five years ago, I was dragging my heels a little bit about it. And that's interesting because I feel like stuff that you're sort of afraid of doing is the stuff that you should be pushing yourself to do so that you're not being complacent and boring. So you you were kind of afraid about touching it. And so how did you break through? Yeah, I for some reason, I just thought, I don't know about time-based media. I never studied this, which... I'm kind of over that whole concept of not having studied something because no one studies anything anymore. They just do stuff. <laughs> so I decided I should just do it. And I actually felt like I really needed to because it's definitely a, a storytelling component that obviously is super pervasive and just part of creating content for people now. It's so fun talking to Tara. I highly recommend you check out her work at Taradane. Dot com, T-A-R-A-D-O-N-N-E dot com, and listen to her episode of Making Ways. It's all about her journey to becoming a professional food, travel, and lifestyle photographer. And if you're interested in photography, you should absolutely listen to the episode with Sarah Remington. Sarah is hysterical and just an amazing artist and photographer, and we have a very fun conversation, so you should check out that talk as well. Next up, we've got a clip from my conversation with Tom Sensani. It's from the very first episode of Making Ways. Tom is very funny. He's one of my funniest friends, and he's also the director of product design at Eventbrite. And before Tom discovered his calling as a designer, he was in school learning about computer science and figuring out that maybe it wasn't such a great fit. Was there a moment in that sophomore year where either a teacher spoke to you and kind of like gave you some guidance or there was something that you saw out in the world that just kind of made you realize, okay, I see what path I'm on now, but I see where I want to go. Like, how did you figure that out? I think it was the freshman year. (laughs) Uh, My first semester uh, where it's like, I sh- these are like the early signs that you maybe shouldn't forge that path, but I'm, I tend to be more stubborn headed. But um, my computer science 101 teacher, um, who I went to Manhattan College, which is a, I believe, uh, a Jesuit school. So it's like partially religious. Um, but, you know, it's not like ham fisted or forced it forced down your throat by any means. But um, my uh, teacher was actually Sister Joan Harnett. Uh, and she was a very wonderful, understanding teacher in terms of like explaining how C and C++ worked. I remember going to her for learning how um, arrays worked, which are essentially like loops that you would start from like I equals one and from one to five, you would continue that loop. And I was just having a hard time. Like I knew, I knew the concept. So the theories I always got, got were fine, but actually applying it was where I found it challenging. And I remember going to her one time and uh, 
I don't, I just don't know if whether I was a terrible student or she was just having a frustrating day, or maybe I was just very frustrating because I always went to her after school for like that help. But I was trying to like understand how like Z indexes worked and arrays. And she just turned to me and she was just like, like completely flustered. She was like, it's not that fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just kind of looked at her and she caught herself and she was like, I'm sorry, but just look at it a little bit more. And I was like, okay, but I like left and I was like, "Mm, maybe I'm just not excellent at this, but uh, it was a small class and everyone was like really good at the camaraderie and like working together, slowly chipped away at getting this. Um, So I think that was a spot where I was like, maybe this isn't for me when like other people were like, this is super easy and I'm acing this. And I just was kind of the guy who was always kind of my non-core classes uh, like English literature, A plus, but then it was always like the physics or physics two or physics for digital systems that required like these really complex formulas, uh, that I was getting kind of C pluses and everything else kind of leveled out. But for me, I was always struggling with like the fundamental thing that made up what I wanted to be. Kimberly Bryant joined the show recently. She's the founder and executive director of Black Girls Code, an organization dedicated to empowering young African-American women by introducing them to and educating them around computer programming and technology. My conversation with Kimberly was absolutely one of my favorites, and it was so uplifting and so inspiring. She shares her path, the words she imparts to those that are struggling to fit in professionally or in school or even in life. And she talks about some of the hardships that she had to overcome in order to thrive as an engineering leader in her industries before launching BGC. So here's Kimberly talking about a particularly trying time in the workplace. And I'd love to hear about some of the most challenging times you faced and also just a little bit about the actual kind of work that you executed there and Mm -hmm. some accomplishments that you look back on fondly? Sure. So I spent most of my career, even though I I ended up in tech and the tech side and I have a a minor in computer science, my background was really heavy industry. So for most of my career, right out of college, I was in major industrial companies right on the ground floor, like in the manufacturing area, right in the field for almost all of my career. So it wasn't until really Bay Area, even the last part of my time in in corporate America here that I ended up being like in the cubicle, so to speak, as a techie. (laughs) From before that, I was always in the field, always like very hands-on. So it was even more of a uh, masculine-facing type of existence, I think, when you're in the field on a manufacturing floor wearing a hard hat safety shoes every day. It was like, it was very hardcore, you know, masculine type environment. Um, But I loved it because it was, I I think as a learner, you know, I learned best by being able to see things, see how they work, see how they fit and things go together. And so as an engineer being in the field, um, there was no better place for me to kind of learn my craft, so to speak. Um, I went from the chemicals industry to the consumer products, manufacturing industry, high-speed manufacturing, then into pharmaceutical industry, and then biotech. Uh, So I spent a lot of time really um, building things, you know, from building factories that actually created products. 
And I love the work that I ended up doing in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries, particularly around cancer medications and being able to work with the scientists that were bringing, scaling up a product and putting it into the marketplace, either to market it or to test it. And I love that work. I really, really loved it. I think the challenging parts of some of the work was, you know, just being uh, very fresh out of college, a year out of college in my first engineering role. I was put into manufacturing as a manager, and I had a manufacturing team that was all at least about 40 years my senior, and who were also, um, these were unionized workers. And to say that was a difficult task would be an understatement <laughs> when, you know, you're managing folks that are old enough to be your father or grandfather in a unionized environment. It was, it was, it was rough at times. But did I, you have to win them over or did you just have to? Absolutely. I had to win them over. And I think for me being an engineer, it helped a lot being a technical person because in I could actually be in the field and being hands-on, it helped because a lot of times, a lot of the, um, my, my direct reports who were a lot older than me actually took me under their wing and like taught me a lot of things, uh, as they, cause I would look like to me, I'm like their daughter, the granddaughter, whatever, but it worked. Um, but there were also times that that didn't work in my advantage as a new manager, because I would be, there are times when I would be on a project or putting in an, a large manufacturing installation and be out in the field with a junior engineer. And I could have construction managers, you know, direct the conversation to my direct report, who was a junior engineer, not me. So there are little things like that, you know, the little microaggressions that happened as a day-to-day basis as a, as a woman in leadership. Um, so there were, there were highs and lows, right? So being able to like see my team like over, overachieve and achieve some, some project goal that no one other manager had ever been able to do were things that were very high highs in terms of the path. But there are also these little things along the way um, as a woman in the field of engineering and as a leader that were also um, negative experiences, but also learning ones at the same time about how to really um, thrive and I think survive as a woman in leadership. Next, we're going to talk about networking and overcoming fears, working with clients and finding a job that really fits your passions. We were lucky enough to be joined by Andy Whalen, a career coach at General Assembly. I absolutely love Andy's story. It's as winding a journey as you can imagine. And Andy approaches life and his advice with really great humor. Uh, But that makes sense when you learn that Andy comes from a performance background and was a comedian at Second City and did some comedy work with Conan O'Brien too. But let's listen in to Andy dropping some knowledge on how to build a strong network and also overcome your obstacles. Part of it is knowing who you are. You know this because you work in brand and you work in understanding how to get people to connect with you. So the first part is to know who you are and how do people perceive you. So I work a lot with people to start to understand when they walk into a room, when they speak with somebody, how others are perceiving them. Because it could be very different than what they think they are, who they think they are, and then start to make really specific choices on how they want to represent themselves, what they're looking to 
um, build out of this relationship. I don't believe in networking just to get a job because if that's the case, if I meet you and you can't help me, then I run to the next person and I don't, I don't get a chance to build that relationship with you down the road and maybe collaborate on something that's pretty powerful in the future. So I work on, uh, with networking and I do a lot of specific exercises with students to learn how to be themselves very quickly so that they can develop a relationship with someone. It's sort of like when you go back to thinking about how did you become friends with people? You were kind of put together through unusual circumstances. In this case, it's a little bit more artificial because you might go to networking events, you might be around people. Uh, But one of the best pieces of advice that I've heard is someone said, if you go to these events, you pretend you are the host because how do you behave when you're the host? You want to take care of people and you want to make sure they're okay. And you're going to ask them questions and you're going to make it more about them. And I talk about it as building a community. If you're a designer, you're a data scientist, you're someone working in this market, you need a community around you because technology changes quickly and you need people to help support you and understand that. And also no one likes to be on an island. If I do what I do and I'm the only one, I have no one to collaborate with. You know, the other coaches that I work with both at General Assembly and now know in the community in, Cal- in San Francisco, but also uh, California, it's nice to have a sounding board to talk about what I'm working on, what they're working on. Uh, so I think that is more critical than I need the job or I need to meet this person. Can you connect me with them? That's part of it maybe, but I'm looking to find out how I can be someone to help you. And then we'll see what happens after that. I'm curious about maybe the biggest roadblocks you see uh, people face who are maybe thinking about making a career transition. The biggest roadblock is fear. Your brain can talk you out of anything. You may have the greatest idea, and three minutes later, you've got 40 ideas why it's not the greatest idea. So part of it is facing your fear and taking a risk. I've spent a great portion of my life trying to make changes to the things I don't like about how I work, how I work with people, uh, how I walk through the world, essentially. And so fear is probably the biggest roadblock. Uh, And part of that is tradition. I work with so many people who started down a path because it was what their parents told them they have to do or because they were too afraid to stand up and say, but I kind of want to do this. And try this. And so that turns into years of, well, I've already started to do this. I can't just give that up now. Uh, So learning how to shut that brain off and follow your heart a bit more is part of it. And then it's old-fashioned hard work. You have to do it. There's no secret to getting that career. There's no magic to it other than hard work. And also getting your stuff in front of people. So it's that balanced approach that I find to be the easiest antidote to fear because you have to do the work in order to find that balanced approach. And somewhere along the lines, I see a shift in the people I work with where they all of a sudden start to believe they actually know what they're doing and they do. I connected with Ravi Krishnaswamy through a mutual friend and boy, was I glad that I did. Ravi is such a talented musician, teacher, and jingle writer and commercial soundtrack producer. 
Uh, he does work for video games, for commercials. He, he writes jingles, which I think is the coolest thing and I absolutely wanted to do when I was a kid. He puts out solo records and he also plays in this really popular Morrissey and Smith's cover band in New York City called The Sons and Heirs. When I spoke to Ravi, I asked him about the advice he shares with his students and specifically around the importance of partnership with clients around creative work. What I talk to my students about, a lot of it is about really um, developing a philosophy around collaboration and around feedback. Um, you know, I don't feel like I can t tell my students how to write or why to write. You know, they need to have that fire to write music, but I can tell them okay, if you're going to write professionally, particularly for media, you know, you're not just writing for yourself and, and because you want to try some new process or some new scale. You're writing with a goal in mind and you're writing with a client on the other end of the phone. And so a lot of what I tell them is, um, is geared towards um, giving the non-musical client the respect they deserve in that conversation and keeping them open to letting other people push their work forward. I've had so many pieces of music that got better because of really what I, because of notes that I thought were really dumb and misguided at the time from clients. I'm like, why would I try that? Why would you tell me to do that? And then of course the piece got better. And, and so I've learned over the years to stay open <laughs> as much as possible. And I also, you know, the one thing I really try to tell them is to, is to, um, to not assume that they do this, 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 and they don't do that, 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 that to stay open to new opportunities, even if they don't seem like a good fit for their skill set, because you never know what you're good at until you try it. Um, and I've had so many situations where, I've been asked to write a piece of music that was well outside of my, what I consider my wheelhouse. Um, but it was based on a relationship that I had developed and I didn't want to give that project to someone else. So I said, okay, well, I'll try it. And I surprised myself. I'm going to wrap up this look back at Making Ways at 25 with Rob Meyerson, a naming and branding expert who worked at Interbrand, at HP, and has launched his own firm called Heirloom. Rob is a friend and a wise man, so let's hear from him about the advice he wished he had listened to when he was younger, and I think this one will leave you with some inspiration around really listening to yourself and to those around you when they say and mean, do what you love. And if you could go back and give, give yourself advice, kind of your younger self about how to get better prepared for this kind of this kind of job, this kind of career? What what might you have done differently? Well, I mean, if you want to go way back, and and something that I'm going to try to impart on on my kids, it's I think I mentioned it earlier that I I didn't know that branding was a job, or maybe I didn't mention that, but I think a lot of people don't, um, and certainly naming even more of a niche within branding, people don't know that that's a job and. The older I've gotten and the more people I've met around the world, the more I realize that almost any 
interest, if you're passionate enough about it, can be turned into not only a job, but probably a pretty decent job if you're good at it. You know, and if you put in the work and and if you can afford to get maybe the right education. So it's not easy necessarily, but there are things like music um, that I think I sort of discounted because I didn't necessarily want to put in the work or, or maybe didn't have the talent, I didn't think, to become a great musician. There are probably like 10,000 jobs, just completely different job titles in the music industry that might have been great for me. And that just didn't, it didn't occur to me. Um, so, so the think, advice being focus on what you're passionate about and there's likely a position out there where you could put that to work. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, and it's a little bit trite, but I, I think even though I heard that all growing up, it still didn't occur to me that the diversity of, of good jobs that are, 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 you know, good different types of jobs that are out there in the world. Okay, that was our 25th episode of Making Ways podcast. Woohoo! Yeah, woo! I just hit the mic. So awkward. That's like a blooper. That's, see, that's a blooper we would usually take out, but we're leaving it in. We're giving you a look behind the curtain. Um, I can't thank each and every one of our guests enough. It's been such a pleasure meeting you, talking to you, and getting to share your insights with listeners. Very special thanks to General Assembly, who have been longtime supporters of the show, even in its short history, and just wonderful partners. Also thanks to Bay Bridged, who I write for and feature Making Ways on the site. Massive thanks to Jim Heffernan. He is the mastermind behind the engineering of Making Ways, who works tirelessly to make this show sound awesome. Please check out his stuff at ttoproductions.com. Thanks to all the people who have hosted me for recordings of the show from Butcher Shop, the amazing creative agency here in San Francisco, who hosted me for a live Making Ways event for San Francisco Design Week, to Jim at his studio in Greenpoint, to my friend Greg Cohen, and to Greg Shegel for their couches and their hospitality. Thanks to Peyton Joyce, a great friend and comrade who copy edits and does some writing as well for the show. And I really appreciate you, listeners out there who enjoy the show, who are learning and digging what we're doing here. Please tell all your friends, drop a review on iTunes, and like us on all the social medias. We are out there, and we want to hear from you about guests you'd like to see featured or questions you have about pursuing a creative career or even podcasting. I answer a lot of questions about podcasting with, uh, with friends all the time. And be sure to visit makingways.co. That's our official website for original illustrations of each guest, articles that really go beyond the episode to offer even more insights and lessons you can take to your career and life, show notes to dig into more of the backstory behind each guest. And you can listen to the episodes there or hear Making Ways anywhere you listen to podcasts on Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, and of course, iTunes. Cheers to 25, and I'm so excited to bring you even more episodes in the time ahead. Thanks so much for listening to Making Ways, and I'll see you soon.